0: This is Purna Virji, I'm the author of High Impact Content Marketing, Strategies to Make Your Content Intentional, Engaging, and Effective, and you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly
1: changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn amongst others as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Perna Virgie to talk about her book, High Impact Content Marketing, Strategies to Make Your Content Intentional, Engaging, and Effective, published by Kogan Page. Perna Virgie is a globally renowned content strategist whose current title is Principal Consultant Content Solutions at LinkedIn. She previously led global learning and thought leadership programs for Microsoft and is an award-winning former journalist, so you know she's a great writer. Perna is a top-rated international keynote speaker and has been featured in the Drum, the Next Web, Search Engine Journal, and Ad Week. She's also been recognized as an Ad Week Young Influential and was crowned Search Personality of the Year by the U.S. Search Awards and was named the most influential PPC expert in the world by PPC Hero. And, interesting facts, she speaks six languages and has never seen a Star Wars movie. Perna, congratulations on high-impact content marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you, Douglas, for having me. Hopefully, I haven't turned off all your listeners who are Star Wars fans now.
1: No, no, no. You know what? I've seen some of the Star Wars films. I'm not a big Star Wars fan, and... I have a son who's like read every Star Wars book. He's seen all the Star Wars movies. I'm just not one of those. I'm not one of those folks, but. So, Perna, as I mentioned in your introduction, you were crowned the search personality of the year. So should I actually refer to you as your highness?
0: (sighs) You know the irony is they did. They put a tiara on my head too, so it was a literal crowning. But how, it was so lovely. It was very lovely to be. Uh, it was very unexpected to um, to win. But no need, please. I'm just your regular like marketing dork who just loves loves the world of marketing, loves all things content. So you can just call me your dorkiness. It's okay, more accurate.
1: So, <laughs> may I call you? It, so it's okay to call you Perna. But that's great. Okay, great. Well, one of my secret marketing book podcast host tricks that I will share with everyone right now, but don't tell anyone else, is that when I see a book is written by a former journalist, I know it's going to be a good book. And to use a baseball analogy, I'm batting a thousand on that one. Every book I've ever read and featured on the show that's been written by a journalist was just top-notch. And that is certainly the case with this book, and I hope it will not be your last book. So it's a long book over, well, long, everything's comparative. It's over 300 pages and it's very comprehensive and is probably the most detailed content marketing book I've read. In fact, I've interviewed authors on this show who have written entire books about each chapter, or just parts of each chapter, in your book, so you've really covered the the waterfront. And I have a lot I want to talk to you about, but sadly, we'll only be able to scratch the surface. So it, it, it may be a little frustrating for you that we can't cover everything. But I want to mention one thing about your book that I just love and adore is how you sprinkle in Perna's pro tips throughout <laughs> the book. I, after I started reading the book, every one of these little pro tips—it's—it seems like uh, something you probably Learned the hard way, <laughs> but they're they're invaluable. And I don't know how many Pernas pro tips there are in the book. I didn't count them up, but you you could probably turn them into like a deck of playing cards or something, or maybe another book.
0: That is such a great idea. And you know, you you're right. I am the valedictorian of the school of hard knocks. So there's, <laughs> I like to experiment. I like to test. And I've been very fortunate to have had leadership who has allowed me to do that. And yes, yeah, some try different things, make educated guesses. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And then hindsight 2020, you're like, oh my gosh, that was so obvious. Why didn't I do that? And so if I can save even one person from making even one mistake, I would consider that a win.
1: Oh, great. There were a couple of my read and I thought, oh man, I learned that one the hard way already. (laughs) So I had a feeling (laughs) you might have as well. So I want to read from a couple sections in the beginning of the book, set the stage and dive in here. So page uh, from page one, people can't get enough of content. Our attention has never been so fragmented. Yet rather than capping out, we continue to consume more and more content across more and more places on multiple screens at a time. Regardless of platform, channel, or technology, content takes on new forms to connect brands and audiences. There's never been a more exciting time to be a content marketer There's also never been a more overwhelming time to be a content marketer because even though marketers pour tremendous time and effort into content campaigns, they often end up underwhelmed by the results. They're left feeling that they're contributing to the noise rather than the signal. Content marketing has turned into a factory assembly line. Create, publish, repeat. And hope it doesn't have to be like this. To succeed in the highly competitive creator economy of today and the future, content marketers need to rethink their approach or go the way of the dinosaur. And then jumping over to page 10 more specifically about the book, you write, nothing will be held back. In this book, I'll break down the why, the what, and how of getting off the content marketing treadmill. The guidance here is designed to be easy to apply. Think real world actionable, not theory. Wide reaching. It's a new way of thinking about marketing, not just content marketing. Evergreen. Timeless principles that will still be relevant years from now. Holistic. There's no point in the perfect strategy that only works in a vacuum and high impact. More bang for your effort buck. Each chapter is a different stage in the process so you can read and act as you go. To help you bring your strategy to life, there are make-it-easy guides and frameworks sprinkled throughout. These are timeless principles for a concept in motion to give your strategy longevity. Even better, these principles apply to far more than just content marketing. They guide you to a new way of thinking about marketing in general, a, dare I say it, more zen way of thinking about marketing. It's time to stop the endless grind and remind ourselves of the true powers of content marketing to connect with, empower, inspire, and add value to the world around us. It's time to stop relying on diminishing returns and to enable content marketing to be a participant in the new world rather than a chaser of it. That's high-impact content marketing. So for someone who may have read a book on content marketing 10 years ago, let's say, explain why to to quote the first chapter title why it's time to reinvent and future proof your approach to content marketing
0: i would say that there are really three reasons one is marketing and technology has evolved so much and i'm not even going into the whole ai space yet i'm thinking about how, the role that marketing that content was considered to play as as number one point which is it was either seen as a means to an end, like, oh, let's just throw out more content so we can get better SEO rankings. Or it was just, oh, let's put out another blog. And that's not what content is. And it hasn't been that for a long time. But many people are still stuck in that kind of thinking from 10 years ago. And that's not the case. The second thing is the fact that we're living in this era of machine-generated and human-generated and user-generated content. The advantage to having machine-generated content is that it's now lowered the barriers to entry. More and more people tend to be creating content from all corners of the world, from all backgrounds. If tech's no longer that hurdle, they're getting through. So that just means there's a lot more to compete against. It wasn't just one of like five blogs talking about cooking to go and stand out. And then the third thing, The third and final point is how our expectations have evolved too. With more and more content coming in and being available to us, ignoring content takes no effort at all. Consuming content takes effort. We're second screening, we're three screening. (laughs) If you want to connect with people, it really has to engage and be about them to just stand out and make people consider choosing you over like the, Myriad other choices they have at their fingertips.
1: In the first chapter, you write about the five choices marketers often get wrong. <laughs> you, you start out with a bang here. Would it be okay if we talk uh, talk about those? Absolutely. So the first one is focusing on outputs versus outcomes.
0: It is such a common problem where there're still folks who might not understand the purpose that content serves or why one piece can be sometimes enough and they'll gauge success based on on the outputs that oh we did 10 blog posts or we did 10 articles or 10 white papers and now we're we're good and it's we're not thinking about what we put out we're not thinking about is it cool is it awesome did we make a lot of noise that doesn't lead to impact. What matters in marketing is only one thing is, did it lead to success? Did it work? And if we only keep focusing on outputs, very often like, oh, we're behind on sales. We have the fewer targets. Guess what? Marketing, go and put out a couple more videos or put out a case study. But there has to be a little bit more thought to it. It has to be a little bit more deliberate than just focusing on, let's just do more and more and more content.
1: Yes, and there's a section later in the book where you joke about how the sales team they say we need more content, (laughs) and we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about that because that's anyway. When I saw these five, I just thought, oh my goodness! I thought I was taking crazy pills. These are all just spot on. The second one is chasing trends versus being grounded in strategy. I tell you, I saw a post that Mark uh, Ritson, an article Mark Ritson wrote about in Marketing Week recently about AI, and it it really captured what you're talking about here. Explain this issue of chasing trends versus being grounded in strategy.
0: It's so tempting today for marketers as the world is so competitive they're trying hard to stand out and the temptation for us just as humans is to keep looking for that next silver bullet because it's got to be the next thing it's not got, you know it's not something that can be as easy as going back to the foundational right <laughs> think about it with like fitness industry like no yes. no it's got to be this brand new diet that's going to make us work it's not the eat healthy sleep enough and exercise like nope that's too boring and dull let me go chase the Latest diet du jour, and it's we do that as marketers as well, where we said, "Oh, of course, this brand new platform's coming out; it's getting all this hype. Let's just dive into it head first because everyone else is doing it." And so, in that case, we. Make our lives more difficult for no reason. And rather than jumping on every bandwagon, all of twenty twenty two it was metaverse and NFTs. Who's talking about it anymore this year? Right now, then AI came and it's gonna do that. Mm -hmm. And it's all shiny. It all makes headlines. Everyone else is talking about it and they create the sense of FOMO or fear of missing out. And so everyone's like, oh, everyone else is doing it. I should do it too. But I always joke it's like sex in high school, right? Everyone thinks that everyone else is doing it. And like, trust me, it's probably not the case for everyone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Yes. Thanks for bringing it down to my level. And uh, <laughs> another thing is that uh, a lot of times uh, marketers may justifiably be concerned about this. Uh, concept called management by in-flight magazine. And that's where the CEO or the boss comes in on Monday and throws an in-flight magazine down <laughs> that includes an article about fill in the blank, NFT, AI, TikTok, whatever. And they go, TikTok, put all our money in it. Let, let's do it. And it's like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> you need to push back and talk about the, uh, talk about the overall strategy. And usually... Uh, the uh, the boss will then uh, start chasing something else that's not related to marketing. Let's talk about another one here that just is uh, pervasive, um, not just for marketing, but also business. Prioritizing short-term versus long-term, particularly important for content marketing because this doesn't always happen overnight. The results, maybe unless your, your sales team can start using the content right away as part of their outreach.
0: It is, and I, this is just the... A quote unquote fault, not necessarily fault, but it is due to all of these analytics platforms that came out, there we could look at data so easily now. We had at our fingertips we think bottom funnel impact. What's happening here? Can we track that? And that just trained us to look for these short-term metrics and short-term measures. And if it didn't move anything in the next 30, 60 days, then it was worthless. And that's not the case. Some things in marketing is a sprint. It is not. Uh, it is, I mean, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So we have to think about it and balancing the short term and the long term.
1: Yes, and it brings to mind the notion of uh, not everything that matters can be measured, and not everything that can be measured matters. <laughs> That's hundred uh, percent. Yeah, unpopular with some uh, some of the folks in management, maybe even marketing. Here's another one though: creating for machines versus humans, and it made me think of the expression I once heard that Google doesn't love you until everyone else does first, (laughs) which is sort of a foil for the folly of creating for machines and algorithms instead of for people. Isn't it?
0: Every time somebody says that, oh, what keyword should I focus my content on to do that? I'm like, why are you doing that? A, that that is a strategy from 10 years ago. But the Machines are not the ones who'll buy your content, the, or who'll buy what you're selling. It's people, right? People relate to people. People listen to people. People pay attention to people. And people buy from people. So if you optimize your content where you get a lot of people to engage with it and want it, the algorithms are going to naturally reward that with additional views and visibility. So... It, please focus on the people first. And I can say this having worked at a search engine and a social media network and run worked agency side and in-house for brands. I've seen it both from the outside and the inside.
1: Yes. Listen to that, people. You're, you're listening to search engine royalty, okay? And she said it, <laughs> so don't take my word for it. The last one is, is what your entire chapter 12 is about. Of the fifth here, uh, not balancing creation versus distribution. And in my mind, it brings to mind the idea of when you will say you publish something, that is not the finish line, that's the starting gun of a race
0: it absolutely is and it's such an easy trap to fall into like honestly Douglas when i thought i finished writing my book i am done and then my publisher is like now you got to market it and i'm like oh yeah right that is true i do have to market it so it's so easy for all of us to fall into this trap of like we did all the hard work it's out there into the world like surely people will find it but nope we have to do that work i always say try to put in a very proportionate amount of time into distributing it as you do into creating it. That's because one, we fall into this belief that just because we posted this at a optimal time on a Monday uh, or, or a weekday that people have liked it and reacted, that means everyone has seen it. That's not the case, right? You are much more familiar and attuned into your, your work than others are, right? They're focused on their work publish it again. Not everyone will have seen it. And plus, not everyone will be in the right frame of mind to want to engage with it at the time, even if they have come across it. So publish it again. Repetition really helps. In fact, there's a it's an entire learning design theory into why spacing and repetition is so important for people to be able to really absorb and take in content.
1: Yes, I've heard Jay Baer say, you've got to market your marketing. And there was a book on the show recently by Josh Burnoff about, it was called uh, How to Build a Better Business Book. It was all for nonfiction authors. He had a number of chapters, I don't know, 25 chapters. The longest chapter, chapter 21, was about promoting your book. <laughs> and we talked about you know the fact that the longest chapter in a book about how to build a book is about promoting your book. So, Which also brings to mind, uh, there was a book on the show some years back, Uh, it was the Content Promotion Manifesto, only about how to promote your content. So there's like, I mean, just one of many other books that, that came to mind. One of my favorite lines from the book, of which there were many, is on page six, where you write, and this is really important, whereas before the focus was on paying to disrupt attention... Longevity lies in investing resources to become what our audiences are interested in. Can you dig it?
0: Can you dig it? Can you dig it?
1: Carve that one in stone, folks. So, Perna, explain what you mean when you write that the wrong shortcuts can lead to even more wrong choices. Well, so often, because
0: it is hard, right? Creating content, understanding audiences, understanding what's going to drive behavior outcomes is hard work. And so often, if people may not realize how important it is to connect to people and they just want to churn out and focus just on outputs, then you're quite likely to say that, hey, let me just offload all of this content creation to the bots. Like I'll just hire, you know, I'll just use ChatGPT or one of these other popular tools du jour to go ahead and create, you know, five LinkedIn posts a day and 10 newsletters and three eBooks. And it's all very samey. And that's not the shortcut that you should take. Can you instead focus on following the right steps and the right principles, but shortcutting how you do that? Maybe can you use research and use tools to help you summarize a whole set of customer interviews and pull out key themes. That's much more valuable than using it to create just another samey article or white paper or ebook that everyone else and their mother are publishing online, right? You cannot afford to prioritize artificial intelligence over emotional intelligence. So it's always EI over AI. (laughs) And that's going to be the case.
1: Yes, you write, marketers who use AI only to pump out mediocre content to game algorithms are unlikely to go very far. And I have a friend with an agency, and he's starting to crank out these uh, blog posts on his new website. And he says, yeah, I, I got the the uh, AI or ChatGPT, or they, they're writing all of them. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> that's, that's not going to end well. Stop it. But, you know, what What do I know? But, you know, on that same page where some of this is, page seven, you you say prepare for things to get worse before they get better. What do you, what do you mean by that?
0: Well, time and time again, we've seen that in history. We have so much proof where we try to do these short-term measures for these short-term impacts, and then it, it's not long-lasting. It is a recipe for disaster. Let me give you two examples. One, in the early days of SEO, people would try to do spammy techniques like keyword stuff Mm -hmm. or blast out, you know, submit to all these directories or buy links or just do single pages with one article on it just to try to game the algo. And then guess what? Google algo caught up. Wipe them all off and like hundreds of thousands of sites have been negatively impacted over the years. Same thing in the early days of the internet era. All of these internet websites, the big dot-com era was all there and then we had the bubble bursting and then, you know, pieces had to be picked up again. And I think that's where we're going with AI because it's gotten to so much hype and then you have these small fly-by-night companies that are coming out or people are misusing it, right? The same tool can be used for good and for not so good. And that's true for anything, right? A knife can cut your veggies or it can, you know, accidentally slice off a tip of your finger. So both good things and bad things can happen with the same tool. It's all in how you use it. Use it with care and thoughtfulness, and then you will have um, very successful marketing campaigns. Don't try to game the system, because ultimately, the house always wins at the end.
1: Yes, yes. Oh, but I want to give listeners something to think about here that was uh, on the very next page, a lot of wisdom, where you say, to future-proof your efforts, bet on what won't change. Explain.
0: So, a question that I get asked very often is, "Purna, what will things, things look like five years from now or 10 years from now? And my response to that is, could you have answered that question correctly five years ago? And most times that answer is no. Like, There's no way any of us could have predicted our landscape that we are in today, five years ago. Yes, but they want Perna
1: to… Predict it.
0: (laughs) I know, know, but even I can't, like we would have got it wrong. And especially with today's rate of change. So then when things seem to be so much in flux, what do you do? Bet on what won't change and what doesn't change is really human behavior. That is the most timeless element of marketing, right? Media may change, platforms come and go, but who we are as humans and how we think is still the same A 100 years ago, or oftentimes even when we were Neanderthals and cave people roaming the planet. Things like surprise is something that works on us we have fear of missing out we have fear of pain we have appealing to the ego like all of these yes. types of ways and how we behave and how we react and what it takes to appeal to people hasn't changed. So why not focus on that and then figure out the right channel and platform and the medium to get your message across now? That's the only thing that's changed. I'll give you another example. Right now, we think, hey, you know, people are watching or they're on TikTok to pass the time or if they've got, you know, an hour or two to kill, they might go and spend it on social media. Well, when I was a kid, that's what I did. I turned on the TV. I watched cartoons on Saturday morning. And then before that, before TV in the era, it was, hey, let's turn the the radio on. People have always sought to be entertained, educated, empowered, just connected to other people. And that's what content can still do that today. And the advantage to us marketers is that we have lower barriers to entry. We have amazing tools to help us give us superpowers. So, if we can tap into what has always worked and then align that with these amazing advanced technologies, that's your recipe for high-impact content marketing right there.
1: Another great line from the book is on page nine, where you write, people want to be entertained, educated, encouraged, and empowered. So, let's jump uh, ahead just a bit. Tell us about the cookbook which I had not heard of, titled Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is a reference to the four essential elements of good cooking a- applicable to any cuisine.
0: It is. So there's an, uh, there's an American chef called Samin Nusrad, and she wrote this book, and she has a Netflix series uh, by the same name. I love this because she takes this very like scientific breakdown of the core elements of cooking, where she says that salt boosts flavor – Fat is needed to achieve the full spectrum of flavors and textures. Acid balances the flavors. And ultimately, heat is what transforms it all. And her theory is that if you can understand each of these elements, then you can really cook anything because it determines the taste and texture of everything and anything that you cook.
1: I love it. Yeah. And so Perna has done the same for content marketing. So... Can we talk briefly about the four essential elements of good content applicable to any cuisine, of course?
0: Exactly. So regardless of what, whether you're a B2B, B2C, in-house agency, wherever you are, if you work in content, it's important for you to understand the four essential element pairs that go into it. So I would say behavior science and learning design, which is understanding that human behavior, that timeless element, and understanding learning design, like how people absorb information, how they retain information, that's comparative to salt because it boosts the flavor and the impact of your content. The next element pair is empathy and inclusion, where you want to really understand your audience's needs, goals, struggles, preferences. If you can understand them, your content will practically write itself because you will know exactly who you're talking to and why you're putting that together. And you cannot be fully empathetic without being deliberately inclusive, right? It's not just the right thing to do. It There is a business necessity that helps your content reach most people. So much like fat in cooking, yes. empathy helps your content achieve its full, full spectrum of flavor because yeah. you reach everyone to delight.
1: Well, let me ask you a question about the, the empathy here because I think that's one of the most powerful words uh, in the, the marketing and sales. E- empathy is not always fully understood. It's not sorrow, compassion, or pity. Explain what empathy actually is.
0: Empathy is understanding what it is like to be in other people's positions Mm. and what it would be like. So, put yourself in their place to understand their world and their worldview and how they would tend to behave. So, it's You're right. It's not sympathy where you're feeling down. Like Empathy is just you're sitting there, you're understanding. You're not seeking to commiserate or anything like that. You're just trying to get to know what it is like to be in their position so that you can create something that will much effectively resonate with them.
1: Why isn't empathy as commonly put into practice as it ought to be, do you think?
0: Empathy is because it's so hard. We have this human nature to want to think that just because we think of something our way is that everyone must think of it the same way. And we're all guilty for it. It's very, very human nature. In fact, you go on a date, you're in an interview, you know, you're probably thinking like, how am I coming across? Am I coming across well when we really should be focusing wholly on the other person, So, and again, it's not a bad thing, right? It's just what makes us human. If you go by Darwin's theory of evolution, it was just important for our survival.
1: Yeah. But you know, earlier you mentioned our cave dwelling ancestors, and you know, really, we have the same mental operating system as. The, our ancestors who were living in caves <laughs> really it's no different we're just not in the caves anymore well most of us aren't let me ask one other question about empathy why do you encourage organizations to stop urinating on themselves <laughs>
0: that you got that. I was like, I I was debating keeping that in. So I always say that it's such an irony when you see companies saying that we put our customers (laughs) first or we believe in taking it. I'm like, please stop weeing in front of the audience, right? What is genuinely customer first would be if you say your needs are our top priorities. like, Yeah, we put you first is really not showing that you put them first.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's like every local television ad. We at this bank do this and we do that. And just so the listener knows, she's not actually talking about people urinating on themselves. Okay, let's go to copywriting and selling skills, the third of the four ingredients. Okay,
0: we've all are we all fed up of broetry, as we call it, which is this way of writing, or all these formulaic hooks, and we see them. People catch up to that.
1: No, wait, wait, broetry, that makes me think of what I see on your employer's uh, social media site. Explain what broetry is, because if it's what I think it is, it drives me nuts.
0: You know, for, uh, speaking personally with my personal hat on, I would I would say I'm not a big fan of it either. But it resonates with some people, and I'm just not the target audience for it. But yeah, so the tree, as people refer to it, is those single lines of text on social media posts, and it usually talks about how you know they're showing how they. Some survival bias story as well.
1: Yeah, I didn't think done. I was going to make it, but I hustled. And I And gr- then I, I did
0: this, and yeah. each sentence is a <sighs> new line with a gap, space in the middle, and then it's so on. And I made $25 million and so you can, do Here are my six steps.
1: Yeah, look, went, hey. I've got a picture of a Bentley. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's my Bentley. Really? No, it is. I didn't buy that from uh, the stock image place. Okay. Yeah, so I'm sorry. I... I Detoured as you can sense, uh, most of the things that appeal to a person with limited uh, maturity skills really jumped off the page for me. But when you said broetry, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stop you there. So copywriting uh, and selling skills are like acid. And say, it's go. I, I, so I interrupt you. I'm sorry, but talk more about the, the copywriting and selling well, skills. Well,
0: copywriting is a, and it's gonna sound really probably not pretentious. I don't mean it to be, but copywriting is a craft and you want to be able to study it. You want to know like which words are easy, which words are um, harder to read or which one give people pause. How do you space out your lines? There's so many little things that feed into the craft of it. It looks easy on the outside, much like watching an Olympics figure skater be like, oh, that looks so easy. I could totally well, yeah. do that gymnastic routine she made I it think look I so could. easy yeah <laughs> and then i'm like oh great i can't even do a push up but so, <laughs> <laughs> I, I could so do it
1: after a few glasses of wine
0: <laughs> exactly but uh, some liquid courage probably but we see right there's a reason why there's the sea of sameness we see all this like dull unappealing content we see all this jargon we just overestimate people's level of awareness or interest Or we just, the worst thing is content that doesn't ask for the sale or doesn't get people to do anything after. Never forget that copywriting and advertising, we have a purpose and our purpose ultimately is to sell and whether the selling is a direct actual sale or whether it's, selling them to invest in your, who you are as a brand. In both ways, you're trying to convince somebody to change their perception. So don't forget to do that. Very often in content marketing, there's this misperception that, oh, we're just there to educate or oh, we're just there to entertain and build the brand. But that's not what we are at the end of the day we are there to sell, and that's what we need to, to do.
1: Yes, and, and- you, you quote Ogilvy quite a bit in the book, and I, I just his, one of his books is one of the two books that had the biggest impact on my uh, you know, work and career. And I can remember uh, he said several many times, "It's not creative unless it sells." and you you touch on that in the book.
0: Yes, his one of his quotes is that your role is to sell. Like, don't mm-hmm. let anything distract you from the sole purpose of advertising. And like one of my other, one of the other Ogilvy quotes that um, always stuck in my mind was that you we can't bore people into buying. <laughs> Copy has to be interesting. And and one of my mentors, Drayton Bird, who uh, who David Ogilvy calls knowing as the person who knows more about direct uh, marketing than yes. anyone else in the world, he said he phrases it so succinctly. It's like the only job of your of each sentence in your copy is to get people to want to read the next line mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And you guide them down to the very end. And at the end, you just say like, hey, by the way, would you like to buy something? And that's literally what it comes down to. But it's not easy to get it right. But that's where if you study a little bit of what has always worked, what are these techniques that have Always appeal to human and human nature. Study from them and learn from them. We'll do that. I think another big mistake is that um, every generation of marketers think that they've invented marketing. Or yes! Oh, my goodness. Marketing. Please
1: explain what you mean. Because when I, I read that, I thought, oh, my goodness. It's Again, back to the crazy pill. Reading your book was sort of an emotional experience for me, uh <laughs> Burna, oh. because it brought, to, it brought to mind so many things that just grind my gears, as they say. Every generation of marketers tends to think they invented marketing. oh, please
0: it is, and so today we're in this digital first world that we live in, and the silos that we have. Marketers are just oblivious to traditional advertising principles, so often they'll fall into this trap of thinking that, oh, you know, um. What could we possibly learn from anything even five years ago? Yeah. But now we're in this world of TikTok and AI and it doesn't matter. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. You want to go back. Like, ignorance isn't bliss. Ignorance is a catastrophe, my friends. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same. As you look back over holistic periods, you'll see the same formats. What We would have done this on a radio show uh, a few years ago. We're doing this as podcasts because core technology has allowed us to create this and have this format. What we would have before when we used to get a lot of direct mail, remember when email was exciting? We'd be like, oh my gosh, we got an email and now we're inundated with emails and now we're said, oh, I got this cool thing in the mail. Look at this. So, Pendulums are going to swing from one extreme to the other. And so if you can ground yourself into learning and following, there's so much that we can learn from direct marketing, from radio advertising, from print, and that we can apply to every other format that we use. Drayton Bird, another great quote of his in the book, was: he he said, if you compare marketing to to war (laughs) almost, then... Why, and if you were the general of an army, would you only learn about tanks and nothing else? Nope, you'd want to learn about you know all these other avenues and aspects that you have so that you can be a successful general of the army.:
1: Yes, you know that brings to mind the quote often attributed to Mark Twain, although everybody every great quote, everybody thinks it's either Mark Twain or Albert Einstein who said it and, but anyway, it was something about. When I was 15, I couldn't believe how stupid my dad was. By the time I was 25, I couldn't believe what the old man had learned. (laughs) (laughs) Just to to recap that, today's digital-first siloed marketers are often oblivious to traditional advertising principles, nor have enough of them adequately studied copywriting. Let's jump to the last one in this uh, recipe roundup. Strategy and measurement, which you say are uh, like heat, the heat part, and you write, read any marketing book or advice online and measurement is usually the last step. (laughs) Why do you think that is?
0: Because most people, because thematic, in the process, marketing and evaluation happen at the end, but that is the wrong place to start thinking about it. And that also is what gets content marketers into a little bit of uh a pickle where they say, oh, you know, I'm only judged for these vanity metrics like reach, etc. But that's not the case. While evaluation reporting can happen at the end, what we need to have before, before we even start creating any content is to have a measurement plan in place first. In that sense, you want to think about first, what are the business outcomes that we're going to drive? Then you're going to tailor that back to like, what's the behavior change that I'll need to drive in my audience for them to go and drive that outcome. And only once you have clarity on that, can you think about, okay, who's the right audience who's most likely to take that behavior change and what will interest them and where do I reach them? Can I give you an example, Douglas? Can I get... Please. Say- Don't stop. Okay, perfect. Let's say that you are launching a brand new fancy-schmancy electric vehicle car company. So a business outcome that you'd probably want to drive is people buying your cars. That would help keep your business going. So then I'm like, okay, so that's the business outcome is I want car sales. So what's a good behavior change in my audience that I can influence as a marketer? Remember, I'm not a seller, but what can I influence as a marketer to get people towards that goal of, you know, you selling cars? I could encourage people to come to the showroom and take a test drive, mm-hmm. or I could encourage people to come to my website and reconfigure the, their vehicle and get them a little excited down the way. So then, once I know that, all right, the behavior change that I really want to drive is this, only then do I start thinking about the right content. So, who's going to be most interested in a fancy schmancy electric vehicle with all the, you know, James Bond esque bells and whistles? It's, you know, who has that kind of You know, income level, who'll want to buy it? Who has this most interest in the, in car technology that you might want to influence? Where do they hang out? What can I say to influence them? And then you'll have all of your success metrics right there. But if I started the traditional way or the more common way is like, oh, we need to go create all of this fancy material. Let's talk about us. Like our car is amazing. Our car does this. And it's like, dude, you're not even figuring it out on what whether it's going to drive results or not, you're not going to have the right call to action in your content to get them to want to take the next line. So, in any case, that's why I always say it's like start thinking about the outcomes and how you'll measure them before you create content.
1: Yes, begin with the end in mind. Otherwise, you're doing what's called check the box marketing. Okay, so we have an electronic vehicle to sell. Start a podcast. No. (laughs) Start a blog. Yeah. So there, you know, don't do that. I want to jump to chapter three. Again, this is going to be frustrating because there's so much we can't cover, but that's the chapter on needs analysis. Let's talk about something important. Let's talk about a big problem for most companies, which is sales and marketing alignment. And I want to quote from page 61. And we started to touch on this earlier. So maybe you saw where I was going, Perna. You're right. Coming back to that common problem of sales teams asking for more content when we know more content is not always the right solution to the problem. How do we explain it to them? This conundrum is often a symptom of a disconnect between sales and marketing. For you marketers, this is a problem you need to address if you want a larger budget and a more prominent seat at the proverbial table, you need to get closer to sales teams. Can you dig it? Yeah! So how can content marketers use needs analysis to get better sales and marketing alignment?
0: Well, the first thing is I just can't stress enough how important it is for us marketers to make sure we build direct lines of communications and regular syncs up with sales. They are the ones that are talking to our customers all the time. They're able to bring in that feedback. But So let me go to the bigger picture. One is it all comes down to measurement and measuring success. So often, one of the reasons we have this disconnect between sales and marketing is we're measuring different key performance indicators, right? Our KPIs are completely different. If we're going to run into sales and be like, oh, we did this podcast and we had a thousand (laughs) listeners and, you know, this was great and we got this other sponsor to come on board, Sales is going to scratch the head and be like, well, okay, but what did it do for us? Right? It's so easy to make a lot of noise if you want to, but sales is always going to ask, did it work? And uh, I love this quote. It's from uh, Rory Sutherland, who says, talking to a finance director about brand iconography is like going to the head surgeon at St. Mary's Hospital and suggesting they trust to the healing power of the crystal. Idiot. It's such a great quote. Yes. And if we replace the word finance director with sales director, it would still be a very, very apt quote. And so the first things we really need to do is understand the core metrics that sales is trying to drive. Right? That's number one for us as marketers to know. And that we use that information to guide our strategy. One of the most common pieces of advice in content marketing is like, study your customer. And... That's not wrong, but there's one step that needs to happen before, which is you need to study your business and know what's going to move the needle for you. (laughs) Because let's say you had two offerings. You had offering A and you had offering B. And maybe offering B is generating a whole bunch of buzz and you're like, customers want to talk about it. But here's the rub. If you actually studied your salespeople, you'd find out that, hey, actually offering B is a loss leader for us. It really doesn't do that much for us. But if we could get even one-tenth of the people interested into offering A, guess what? We'd be rolling in the money and hitting our quotas, and you'd have a bigger seat at the table as a content marketer. So it's so important to start by understanding what is the business need within your organization first understand your priorities and then once you know that listen I can make a huge giant impact if I go and talk about x then go and understand what your customers are thinking what they want and what are their desires wants perspectives about x so that way you can get yourself on the right start and set yourself up for success later and know that you're creating the right things that will have tangible impact and you're not just spinning the wheels like yes it may be really good and b is more popular and you'll get a lot of posts and attention but if that's not going to convert to sales at the end of the day it doesn't matter
1: oh amen amen let's go even further into this uh, the chapter on uh, customer analysis I've got to quote from page 92 Customer research is something most content marketers know they should spend more time on, but with never-ending deadlines, it's easy to put it off or somehow never quite get around to doing it. Much like my stationary exercise bicycle gathering dust at home. I'll start tomorrow, I promise myself, for the nth time. It's not just a time thing. I've heard plenty of other justifications from marketers. At companies of all shapes and sizes, they're generally permutations of we don't have the bandwidth slash budget slash resources right now, or we don't want to bother our customers (laughs) or we're not really sure how to best go about it on one or two occasions. I've even heard the egregious, our CEO CMO grand Bach, can speak for the customers. You just need to write the copy. Are you rolling your (laughs) eyes at that one? Yep. Me too. I can understand some of those objections. I felt similarly early in my career Perhaps you have, too. I remember thinking of it as drudgery back then. I believed it would be more beneficial and fun to focus on content creation, and I'd get all the learnings needed from the response to the content. Quite the folly of youth. Now, I want the listener to envision pouring themselves a big piping hot cup of cocoa. Perna how can COCO help content marketers with their customer research?
0: (laughs) COCO is the acronym or the framework that um, I have written out in the book, which is how you can really, really create this powerful conversion-driving customer needs analysis. So COCO, the acronym stands for 1C, Customers Actually talk with them, right? Sounds bananas level concept. I know, it's like, who are these nameless faces people? They should love what I put out. Nope, nope, nope. Please talk with them, understand who they are, what they want. You don't have to talk to as many as you think. Mm -hmm. Sometimes eight eight or 10 interviews is more than enough. Uh, The O is talk to also the ones who got away. Um, What about the folks who didn't convert? There's a ton of merit in speaking with them. Those are some of
1: the most powerful interviews we've ever had, as we found out, because they're really candid and Mm -hmm. frank, there's no hard feelings, but they explain why they they didn't buy from you. It's really, really valuable, and some of the most difficult uh, interviews to get, I think.
0: They are, they are. And so maybe you incentivize a little bit or offer something or even just the goodness of the heart and say that I'm really just seeking to understand, here to support you, but it can do- And
1: not sell to you.
0: (laughs) And not sell. I'm just here to learn because it will, even if you got two or three of these in a a half or in a year even, the learnings that you get would be so invaluable because you really understand some of- their motivations for choosing someone else or the hesitations around you it's almost the same thing why people in in leadership will do 360 degree uh Feedback right on yourself, you don't know what you don't know, so try to get that. Mm -hmm. The other one is after you talk to, so you can probably talk to you know, handfuls of customers, maybe just a couple here or there of people who didn't convert. But a great resource that are not a lot of marketers tap into are their customer facing colleagues. Think about the sales reps, think about customer service and support, people who really spend most of their time in conversation with your target audience. Talk to them. Mm -hmm. And then you don't want to stop there. You want to then find things that your customers or your audience puts in their own words. So scour the internet or online sources for what your audiences might be saying, what they might be doing. And then at the end, we're in this age of digital transformation, isn't Mm -hmm. it? So automated data collection is just another Tool or aspect that you can lean on. In fact, it's not even that advanced. There's zero-party data, which Forrester had coined that term back in 2018, where there's simple questionnaires that are part of most apps or websites. That if you can tap into some of that data, it'll give you a ton of information.
1: That's where they tell you what they want specifically. I I was not familiar with the zero-party data.
0: Yeah, what it is, so let's say if you've ever signed up for an app, so recently I signed up for a language learning app, because I just really love learning languages. Because
1: six is not enough for you.
0: (laughs) Well, I want to learn some more different ones. And so then I signed up, and it asked me a couple of questions. It said, hey, why do you want to learn whatever XYZ language? Was it because of, you know, travel or vacation? Was it because of work slash business for school? for you know just arts and entertainment and if you understand why I want to learn a language then you'll know how to tailor some of the messaging if we're doing it for work for business if we're seeing a high percentage of people sign up to learn it from work then maybe one of the things you can develop later is all of the work related or professional related stuff um, or another question I've seen asked is hey how much time per day can you devote to to learning and I saw checklists like under 15 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, 90 minutes-ish, not sure. That can help you shape your content strategy as well. So if you knew how long that they had to learn, how you could then create content that really spoke to that, that, oh, you only have 30 minutes a day. Here's how you can learn German in 30 minutes a day. Um, Things like that.
1: Yes. Great. Thanks for explaining that because it was, you know, every book I read, I learned something new. In answer to all of you who say, are you still learning anything, Douglas? Yes. Every book I read, I'm slapping my head saying, Douglas, how did you not know that? <laughs> so let me jump to uh, one question about chapter six, about the competitive landscape. And just so folks know, these are chapters with enormous amounts of detail, exactly the best ways to go about doing all these things. So, But unfortunately, I can, I'm only going to be able to ask you like one question. Do you find that a lot of content is produced without ever looking at what the competition is doing?
0: Oh my gosh, all the time. I can't tell you how many times I've had this super enthusiastic marketer come to me and say like, look, I've created this very amazing in-depth white paper or ebook or research report. And I spent, you know, countless thousands of dollars on it. And it's not doing well. we like, why? Why did that happen? And then I'll look and I'm like, oh, great. You are the 785th resource on exactly the same thing. And it's so unfortunate because intentions usually tend to be always very pure and very good where they want to reach, but it's easy to get trapped in your little bubble. And then if you, the danger of being in that bubble of only focusing on your product is you're not seeing whether it fits in the market or how you can differentiate yourself enough to stand out and to grow. So, you 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 know, I always say, look at Amazon. They are no longer always the cheapest price on every single product. But what they have done is people still want to choose them because they're so convenient to buy and You know, it has tended to be quite reliable with their shipping and customer service should things go wrong. And so you don't always have to work yourself to the bone to be 100 times better. Find the right thing to focus on, and then slightly better is pretty much all you need to outpace the competition.
1: Yes, it's like I love to talk about. When you and your friend are being chased by a bear, Perna, do you have to be faster than the bear?
0: (laughs) No, you just have to be faster than your friend. I yes. love that. that. I wish I put that in the book. That's so good, Douglas.
1: Well, you know, if you do uh, a second edition, you know, you can, you oh, can yeah. men- mention me in the acknowledgements for the stupid bear joke. Let me just frighten the listener, at least the marketers. If you are presenting your content program or whatever to your management, and they say, that's great, what's our competition doing, by the way? And you don't have an answer, and you you haven't read chapter six. You better update your resume. I mean, just just do some of the things in this chapter just to get a handle on, so you at least have an answer as to what the competition's doing. Let's jump to chapter seven, strategy and measurement planning. I want to quote a couple of statistics. This is on page 143 for those playing the home game. 78%, oh, this is from um, SEM Rush's State of Content Marketing, 2022 Global Research Report. Two factoids. 78% of those who believe their content marketing was very successful in 2021 had a documented content marketing strategy. 81% of companies with unsuccessful content marketing efforts don't have a documented content strategy. So I guess uh, briefly, what, what is meant by a content strategy and why do, do people not have it?
0: Oftentimes, people feel they're either a a small team, they don't really need one, or they're too busy, and I don't have time now, I'll come to it. Or they think a content
1: calendar is a strategy? Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) They'll think, oh, I have a content calendar, that's surely the the strategy, but that's not the case. So what a content marketing strategy plan, it provides an overview, or it it really is your business case. It tends to cover things like the why and the when. So Mm -hmm. what are your Core objectives, why did you choose them when you'll execute them? Importantly, it talks about the who and the do, which is who are you trying to get to do what next? It talks about the what and the want, which is what messaging will resonate best and what will make people want to take action. And it talks about the where and the which, as in where will you reach people and which formats will you use? And then importantly, it will also include the how much and the how, which is how much budget, capacity and time will you have? And how will you measure success? To Going back to what we talked about, where you will plan how you'll measure success before you even start creating the content.
1: Oh, and... I don't want anybody saying they can't do it because on page one number 53, Perna shows how you do this in four slides. <laughs> slide one, goals and objectives. Which direction are you heading? Slide two, who are we targeting? I.e., who are you focusing on and what do they need? Slide three, what will resonate? I.e., what did you learn from your analyses and potential risks? And slide four, what are we doing? I.e., what routes will, will we take to get there? One other question that I want to ask you about. You write on page 159, when you summed up this issue about backward design, you say, if you only remember a handful of things from this book, please let this be one of the things you do remember. Backward design. Explain what that is.
0: So let's go back to our car dealership uh, or the, the electric vehicle car analogy, right? You want to start with your outcomes in mind and not focusing on what you want to say or do in your output. Very often, the temptation in content marketing is like, okay, what do we want to say? What do we need to say? Or if you've read my book, then you're probably going to focus on the question, which is what does my customer or my audience need or want to hear? But that's still not the right starting point. There's a concept in instructional design called backward design, which... It's very similar to like watching the end of the movie first. So if you know your ending, then you'll figure out the right path to get there. And so that's when you try to decide. The uh, your whole process starts with the business goals and aspiration. What's the outcome? Am I trying to sell more cars? And then I'm going to think about what's the action or behavior change that marketing can influence. And please be realistic. You're not going to come in and be like, "Oh, I'm going to sell a hundred cars." I mean, that's not marketing is not that super powerful right maybe maybe but tangibly let's try to think about the behavior change which is getting people to take a test drive and then you'll think about well who do i want to get to test the test drive how do i interest them how do i add value so start every piece of content by thinking about the outcomes like what do we want to happen next
1: oh my goodness now i want to jump to the there's a uh uh quote from page 172 that just made me chuckle, Perna. I'm going to quote. Have you ever been part of one of those brainstorming meetings, the kind most people dread? All across the globe, those meetings follow a similar story. There's usually a too-broad-to-be-effectively-brainstormed goal. Trite reminders, enforce jovial tones, urge participants, let's get really innovative here <laughs> and proclaim, no idea is a bad idea. The same voices dominate most of the meeting. Egos battle and bruise. Groupthink is rampant. The result... More samey, in-the-box ideas. There's no meaningful filtration or prioritization, nor clear steps. Worse still, for some people in the room, feelings of exclusion are reinforced without prior time to gather their thoughts. The internal processors, i.e., those who need to think through their ideas before talking, (laughs) can feel as if their voices are being drowned out by the external processors, i.e., those who do their thinking out loud. So it brought to mind this clip from the comedy central corporate show which i'm going to play now let's start by asking a simple question why are we here shouldn't you know the answer to that of course baron because that was a rhetorical question okay we just need to brainstorm five ideas but to be safe let's come up with 50 Let's make it 100. Any idea is welcome when brainstorming. Literally anything you say will be discussed in detail without criticism. My brain just stormed an idea. How about we call off this meeting until Christian gets back? Come on, that's a bad idea. I thought we weren't gonna criticize ideas. Fine, yeah, let's put it on the board. Any other ideas? Racism. Racism, great idea. Nice. Jesus Christ, this is a nightmare. What's that, Matt? Oh, I just said that this is a nightmare? This is a nightmare, great. You know, this reminds me of when I was selling cigarettes wholesale to health food stores back in the 70s. At the time, we didn't know they were bad for you. Or actually, we did know, but we kept a lid on it. Back then, you were allowed to have secrets. Secrets from the government, from your wife. It didn't matter.
0: Thank you so much, Bill. Very helpful. Does anyone have a coherent idea?
1: Hey, guys. Guys, can we get off our phones and focus up? I only played that because I'm laughing to keep from crying because I've been in some (laughs) of the worst brainstorm sessions. And I have never read a book that has such detailed information on how and how not to do a brainstorm session as yours. And we don't have time to go into all the, the details. I just want people to know it's there. So let me just ask about the biggest mistakes of brainstorming. If it's not failing to do any planning, for a brainstorm session, what are the biggest mistakes you've seen?
0: I would say it's one, not having a clear agenda, not having a facilitator. But if there's, honestly, if you're just looking for one quick thing, send out ideas in advance. Let people get on equal ground beforehand. As a self-confessed, processor. I talk to think, which drives most people bananas. Like the guy in that clip
1: talking about selling cigarettes.
0: Exactly. But if I have had time to think, if I have time to process beforehand, then it's so much more effective. And there's a lot of people like that. Some people will talk to think, and then some people will think to talk, Mm. um, think before talking. So, Send people out, let them mine for ideas, let them do some of the divergent thinking on their own. So solo brainstorming time before coming together as a group tends to, time and time again, research has shown it, lead to much richer bonus ideas. And then the other thing is to really structure your brainstorming meeting to have a clear opening. You want to break the ice. You want to get people, everybody included and participating from the start. You want to build in most of the time for divergent thinking and use activities, facilitate it. And then also make sure you're leaving time for convergent thinking when you're with the group. Do a little shorthand. do a little prioritization, do a little joining forces, and then before you close it out so that people have had time to get initial reactions, before you go once again and leave it a day or two to marinate in your brains and come back. Um, But yeah, do one thing in your brainstorming meeting is give people time to study and think before. to open up with a very high impact icebreaker. That way, everybody will participate and then have two or three activities for divergent thinking. So it's not just one person or those two or three loud voices dominating the whole meeting. I think I wrote this whole chapter because of the frustration of being in so many of those terrible, terrible brainstorming meetings where nothing came out or really worse, worse was when So many good ideas came out and then nothing was acted on because there was just no follow-up. And I was like, no, we can't do this.
1: Oh, your book is just like a support group, Perna. Maybe you should become (laughs) an analyst or something. Oh, my goodness. If you do brainstorming sessions or have to lead them for your company and you haven't read this chapter, you're going to be kicking yourself. And kicking yourself is not a good thing to do. Let's jump to another part that's very important. You have a chapter on inclusion and diversity, And you reference a 2021 study from Facebook's parent company, Meta, which revealed that most people, 59%, say they prefer to buy from brands that support diversity and inclusion. And for the listener, when Perna writes about diversity, she's not referring to my spirit animal Ron Burgundy's take on diversity. What in the hell's diversity? Well, I, I could be wrong, but I believe uh, diversity is an old, old wooden ship that was used during the Civil War era. My sense is that a lot of organizations don't create less inclusive content on purpose, but rather more of them just aren't thinking about it. Is that true?
0: It is. And that's why I say that content marketers, especially like those of us putting out content have a big responsibility because the content that we put out, if it doesn't represent the world around us accurately, then we're just, you know, even inver- inadvertently, unknowingly not meaning to, but we are reinforcing the stereotypes. Yeah. Like, I'll ask you read, you listeners, this question that, you know, how often do you recall seeing any marketing or any, even movies that feature a lot of, say, plus-size people or older individuals or same-sex couples or people with disabilities or people with disabilities who are not pictured just in a wheelchair, right? There's just so much. We tend to reduce people to one aspect of themselves. And I think all of us humans, we want to be seen for all of who we are, not just one aspect. And Mm -hmm. if we can create marketing that Just, I mean, it's so simple. It's not you're not being woke. You're not taking a stance. You just want to ensure that you're accurately representing the world that we see around us.
1: Yeah, I saw. I thought that that chapter, well, for me, it brought to mind a lot of unforced errors that companies are making just because they're not. They're not thinking about it. It's like they're not. You know, they're not bad people, but they're just they're they're unaware and. The thing that really got my attention, and I want you to talk about this, explain what you mean when you urge your readers to pay attention to content that's not content as it relates to being more inclusive.
0: I'm so glad you brought that up. And you're right when you say unforced errors, because that's exactly what it is, right? Sometimes people will just choose a font, which is the serif like several serif fonts tend to have these additional lines or flourishes that can be hard for some people to to read, especially at smaller sizes. So that could be an unforced error, something that's just your font.
1: Yes. And you don't like being called Puma, right? Explain. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: So my name is Purna and in so many different fonts, the R and the N merge and look like an M. And if I had a dollar for every time somebody was like, hi, Puma, I'm like, oh, awesome. I could buy an island at this point. I'm well, you sure. could buy
1: that uh, <laughs> that athletic shoe company, Puma.
0: Yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I am the the. Oh. There we go. I'm like, come sell it to me. Let me be your brand ambassador. Give me free shoes for life. That would be awesome. You can get
1: more than shoes, but you know, we'll talk later. Yeah,
0: and their clothing and everything. Anyway, but to go back, there is another one. So there's so many times there's content that we just don't think about as content. And one of my old managers, Hi Dave, used to use this line where he said that, "Are you snatching defeat from the jaws of victory?" where you're getting so close to winning, and then at the end, it's just lost. And it's a great... analogy that he uses. again, we chase silver bullets when oftentimes victory is right there in those very <laughs> yes. boring, dull foundations. It's like, eat some more, you know, eat healthier, exercise, sleep more, and that's good. Avoid stress. And then we're like, no, no, no. We must go and buy this like fancy Cairo freezing or whatever yes. technology. That will solve it.
1: Oh uh, yes. Oh my goodness. And you know We're all guilty of it, and I am too, and I'm about to confess here. A couple years ago, I think it was around Christmas time, I was talking to my family, wife, uh, two kids. My kids are now like 25 and 28, and I was telling them about a a trip I had gone on. And in the course of talking, I happened to mention something on the plane, and I mentioned a stewardess. And both my kids jumped down my throat and said, Dad, don't say stewardess, it's flight attendant. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, gosh, I... (laughs) (laughs) So, it was an unforced error, but it was sort of like, wow, I I guess I need to be more cognizant of, uh, you know, all the terms I'm using.
0: And that's okay. And sometimes it can scare people, you know, but I will also caveat that language is always evolving. What was okay to say even a couple of years ago may not be. And so, very often people don't do something because they fear Messing up and certainly we've all seen in this era of cancel culture that the, the risks of messing up can be quite severe, but we still can't do nothing. You, if you mess up speak up. You can apologize. People are a lot more understanding. You can explain what you're doing. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay.
1: So let me just mention, because we've really uh, gone way over with our time, and Pern has been really uh, generous. There's a chapter on proven copywriting strategies to keep people reading on and on, and it's just chock full of great tips and nuggets. And I have to laugh, because when I posted a picture of your book earlier this week on LinkedIn... To let everybody know that you know this this interview was coming up, one uh, person said, "Are there any good tips in the book?" <laughs> I don't know if you saw that. Did you see it? I did. Yeah, I saw that. And comment. I said, "Yeah, there's about 300 pages of tips." <laughs> and I was being a little, you know, sarcastic, but it was just it really is chock full. So all these things we don't have time to talk about. And then the last chapter is about something we talked about already in the beginning, which is mm-hmm. about distributing your content. And let me just ask one question about that. Explain what you mean when you write plan for distribution before you ever create content.
0: So often, much like with measurement, we're like, oh, we have this, now what do we do with it? But if you had an idea for how you'd want to use it later and distribute it, then you could create it with, To be more flexibility and design, how often have we said that, oh, we have this podcast, but now we want to have a YouTube channel. And if only I had recorded my podcast with video, now I could have it as a video on YouTube. I could do other things, right? There are all of these different things you can think of, or, hey, I know that I'm going to want to... Mark, let me, let me use the example that you gave for my book for, you know, Purna's pro tips. You could say like turn it into cards or or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I'm actually using them because I knew I'd want to have little bite sized pieces Mm -hmm. that, cause it's smaller, easier for people to absorb. And I knew that I'd leverage it to help in promoting my book later or giving people a taste of what my book's about. And so I'm using those Purna pro tips very often in, these little videos that I put up every Tuesday on LinkedIn. So there's some ideas that I had in mind for what I want to use content for later, and then I'll leverage it and tailor it out so I can use it. Plus, it helps me ensure that I'm on... The right path? Do I have my one big idea? Mm -hmm. You'll know you have a big idea as if you can see multiple uses for it. So that's almost my quality control gauge where, oh, can I take this content and I can see this being a great article? I can see this being a podcast. I can see this becoming an email sequence. I can see it being used in 10 places. I know this is a big idea. I know I'm going to use it a lot. Let me prioritize this first. Whereas if I had something, oh, you know, this only really lives and has one purpose. Then maybe that's something that you can deprioritize or figure, you know, you prioritize it accordingly. Maybe that one place is enough for you. But try to think about where it will land before you create content, and you'll just save yourself so much time. And you'll it will help you with your distribution because you'll know exactly where it's meant to go right after. And you're not sitting there now being like, "I just wrote this. Where do I distribute it?"
1: Right, and then you don't have to listen to these podcast hosts say, "Hey, here's an extra idea. Turn it into a deck of playing cards." No, I'm kidding. But no, you know- I love that idea. <laughs> See, you're
0: already thinking about distribution. I love yes.
1: that. But but even though the content was already produced, but what I've seen happen is. Some- on those rare occasions when the distribution is considered before the content is created, invariably, someone will say, oh, we could also do this. Oh, that's a yes. great idea. We could also use it for that. And then they can start to atomize their content more than they had realized. And then they, I think they're starting to feel much smarter. And there was another um, analogy that Jason Miller talked about and um, another author whose name I'm going to look up here. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, Rebecca Lieb's book, Content, The Atomic Particle of Marketing. And they talk about this idea that you've probably seen of, it's like uh, in the United States, at Thanksgiving, we have these big turkeys. And so you uh, ultimately, you, you eat the turkey, but then you turn it into sandwiches, you turn it into soup, you turn it into many other things. And so that's where, if you think about the distribution first, you can think about all the different other ways you can make the most of that Uh, content or turkey, although hopefully your your content is not a turkey. So, (laughs) Perna, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: I would say focus on outcomes over outputs. And to do that, you will want to make sure you're putting in the work before you start creating the content to understand your audience, understand how you'll measure success, understand how you'll distribute it, and only then create the content. So that will help you focus on outcomes
1: over outputs. I don't think a lot of companies realize the staggering fortune they could save (laughs) on wasted content if they just do that. So- Let's give the listener one thing to do today just to put in action an idea from the book as soon as they finish listening to this. What's one thing a listener could do today just to get started in the, the, the future-proof direction?
0: Reach out to your salesperson. Start building bonds with them. Be, turn them into your ally. Understand what's going to move the needle for your business and that's going to get you started to start thinking about outcomes more effectively.
1: Can you dig it? I could not agree more. Oh, that's such great advice. And that is why I have so many doggone sales books on this show. I have over 60 on the show so far because the marketers that understand sales, the ones that have met their salespeople, in fact, the ones that maybe go on a sales call once a month are the most effective ones. Really, the, the most successful marketers are the ones that have a deep understanding of the selling, the sales process, but most importantly, the buying What's going on in the, in the customer's mind, which we've we've talked about. So, looking back, Perna, what books have most inspired your working career?
0: There are a whole bunch. So I would say Drayton Bird's book, Common Sense Digital um, and Direct Marketing. Drayton Bird's somebody who I really really admire. I find he's got one of the most sensible, pragmatic, but still inspiration takes on marketing. I go back and I read really old books because it always is so fascinating to me to see what worked then and yes, what still like, works. Yes, uh, like John so.
1: Capel's Scientific uh, Average. You mentioned exactly. Star-Lover. They're 100 years old and they're still solid gold.
0: Exactly. He's got his Tested Advertising Method by John Capel is one of my favorites. Also, Claude Hopkins, oh, advertising yep. yeah so Claude Hopkins is great. Then Nancy Duarte, I love her book and how she pre- – creates presentations and Mm -hmm. does that. And then there's another one, which is The Spirit of Kaizen, which was a book that was really inspiring to me, which helped me realize that small changes done really well can lead to big, big outcomes later. So we don't always have to do this big, massive things. But if we can do, probably it ties into the ethos of today, which is do fewer things better. um, That would be another one. So I love all of these books have been just incredibly helpful. So, I would highly recommend, like, stop thinking you invented marketing. Go back and read John Caples, Claude Hopkins, read yeah. Drayton Bird, read David Ogilvy. That will be a big, you'll be just so much ahead if you do that.
1: Yes, and it's so funny how you wrote in that chapter on copywriting about how content creators can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking all their content needs to be all new or never seen before to be successful, but that's not true. Yeah. There's so many things in your book where you're very nicely saying you're doing it the hard way folks. (laughs) You you need to update how you're doing it. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading?
0: There's a recent book uh, by Tom Goodwin called Digital Darwinism. So this is his second uh, version of the book, which there's a lot of all new stuff in there. And so, that's on my list to read. And another one that I'm looking to read is Unreasonable Hospitality, because I've seen a lot of people recommend that. So, I'm looking forward to reading those two. Oh,
1: great. And that is why I ask what is such a popular question, is to find out about other books. Yeah, I see Tom Goodwin. Oh, this is a Kogan page as well. Yeah. Digital Darwinism. And what was the other one? Pardon me, listener, while I look at Unreasonable up. Hospitality. Oh, right. I've, I've heard about this. Will Gadara. Yeah. Yes. Unreasonable Hospital, the remarkable power of giving people more than they expect. Well, that's great. And at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your site your LinkedIn profile. I mean, come on, you work for LinkedIn. So uh, I want people to reach out and and your Twitter account. Listeners, please reach out to Perna and let her know that you heard this interview. As you can see, she's a lot of fun. She likes to answer questions. I think she would enjoy hearing from you. And come on, this isn't going to be her last book, and she's going to have to make another decision down the road of which podcast do I want to go back on. So please, please reach out to her and Thank her for being a guest on the show. Well, past guests have really told me how much they enjoy hearing from Marketing Book podcast listeners, and it's they wouldn't say that if they weren't hearing from you. So please keep it up. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book podcast in your favorite podcast app like uh, Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is High Impact Content Marketing: Strategies to Make Your Content Intentional, Engaging, and Effective. The author is Perna Virji. Perna, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Douglas, thank you for having me. As you said to me before, this will be the most fun podcast ever, and I can very much attest that this has absolutely been so much fun, and I'm so thrilled to be here. All right! I'll write a book. I'll write another book just so I can come back.
1: (laughs) And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, formal education will make you a living self-education will make you a fortune